What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. There's an anecdote that's often included in biographies of 16th century astronomer Tycho Brahe that, while almost entirely irrelevant to his life or scientific achievements, I think is worth talking about. You see, Tycho Brahe had a pet elk. He had a few pet elks, we can determine that from primary sources, but one in particular was tame. It would trot along at the side of his carriages and join him inside the house. He and his family would feed it beer and delight in the way that it lapped it up. One of Bry's German friends wrote to him once, asking if it was true that in Denmark there was an animal called a rix that was bigger and faster than a deer. Brahe knew his friend. He knew he was one of those wealthy aristocratic types who just wanted as many different animals as possible for his own private zoo. Brahe wrote back, saying, No, there's no ricks. You're probably thinking of a reindeer. But, hey, if you happen to want an elk, I have a tame one that you can borrow. The letter was sent off to Germany, and by the time the friend wrote back, saying, Sure, it was too late. Brahe had already sent his tame elk over to a neighbor's house for a party. That party's guests were so amused by the animal that they kept giving it more and more alcohol. The elk made it to the top of a staircase, and then, drunk, it stumbled down and broke its neck. Now, I reiterate, the tame, drunk elk who fell down the stairs isn't relevant to Tycho Brahe's scientific achievements. But the story's strangeness does sort of capture why Brahe has become such a figure of fascination for centuries. A drunk pet elk is a detail you expect to find in the biography of a Romantic-era poet. It's genuinely astonishing that it didn't happen to Lord Byron. It's debaucherous and whimsical. And yet, Tika Brahe's scientific legacy is basically the opposite of that. It's an incredibly precise and comprehensive data that he collected. He was the last of the major naked-eye astronomers, working in the era before telescopes. And for decades of his life, he pioneered equipment that brought a brand new level of accuracy to the astronomical community in Europe. But he was also the wildly strange figure that paraded around Europe with a brass nose, who became lord ruler of an entire island, who worked as an alchemist, and whose death was either humiliating and mundane, or a captivating murder of scientific jealousy, depending on who you ask. Personally, I believe the science, even when it disproves the fun murder theory. But, as Tika Brahe taught us, a devotion to science doesn't have to be boring. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood.
Tika Brahe was actually born by the name Tiga Brahe in 1546. But since starting university, he would refer to himself by the Latinized version of his name, Tico. And since that's the name by which most history refers to him, that's the name we'll go with here. He was the oldest son of an incredibly storied lineage of Danish nobles. Almost every one of his male relatives had a prominent position in the Danish or Swedish king's privy council. They almost all had castles. He was the oldest of eight children who lived to adulthood, and all of his brothers went on to become well-respected government or military officials. Tycho probably would have shared their fate had it not been for the strange decision to send him off as a toddler to be raised by his Aunt Inger and Uncle Jorgen. Books often refer to the couple as childless, which paints sending them Tycho as a polite act of charity, giving them a child to raise since they didn't have one of their own. But that's an incorrect impression based on hindsight. At the time that they got the little tyke Tico, Inger was only 20. It's strange to think that they would have known at the time that they would have been childless. But Uncle Jorgen was a military hero and an intellectual. Maybe Tico's parents thought those were reason enough to have him raise a child. Jorgen valued education in a way that Tico's actual father might not have. Tico attended a prominent church school, and then at age 13, he was sent to the University of Copenhagen to study law as his uncle requested. It was at the University of Copenhagen that Tico's love of astronomy sparked into focus. On August 21st, 1560, when Tico was 14 years old, the moon passed between the Earth and the sun resulting in a total solar eclipse. Even though the eclipse was only partial from where Tycho observed it, it was incredible. The type of profound event that makes you wonder about the meaning of life and mankind's place in the universe. But to Tycho, even more fascinating was that it had been predicted. By tracking the positions of the sun and the moon, astronomers had been able to predict that a solar eclipse would occur decades, or even centuries before it happened. It was the closest thing to actual magic in a world that did still believe in alchemy and being able to foretell the future. The problem, Tico realized, was that these predictions of the solar eclipse by astronomers had been a full day off. If only their observational tools had been more precise, Tico thought, then humans could fully understand the universe. Tycho's uncle Jorgen tried to get his nephew to focus on a more respected and conventional field, but Tycho wouldn't be deterred. He had found his passion. At 16, Tycho was sent on a tour of Europe to learn foreign languages and about the other major European courts. It was a rite of passage for noblemen who would need to become not only well-educated in intellectual matters, but also matters of decorum and diplomacy. Escorting Tico on the tour was a 20-year-old middle-class student named Anders Sorensen Videl, hired to teach Tico and also to keep him in line. Videl begrudgingly pretended not to notice when Tico secretly purchased books of astronomy, and he also pretended not to notice the tiny, fist-sized celestial globe that Tico would consult whenever he thought Videl wasn't looking. By the time the two boys returned to Denmark in 1565, 
they were met with two surprises. First, that Denmark was at war with Sweden, and also that Tycho's uncle, Jorgen, was dead. Jorgen was vice admiral of the Danish fleet, and he had achieved several prominent military victories, including sinking Sweden's biggest warship. But he died a hero in a different way. The king of Denmark, Frederick II, got drunk following a victory and fell off his horse into a canal in Copenhagen. Jorgen leapt into the icy water to rescue him, got pneumonia, and died two weeks later. Tycho wouldn't stay in Denmark long. He left to go to Germany to study medical alchemy at the University of Rostock. It was there that Tycho would experience one of the most infamous events of his life, the duel where he lost his nose. The duel didn't actually start with a duel. It started with a lunar eclipse. Tycho Brahe, who had just turned 20 years old, analyzed the lunar eclipse of October 28, 1566, and decided that it foretold the death of the Turkish Sultan Suleiman the Great. So certain was he about the accuracy of his interpretation that Tycho wrote a long Latin poem about it and posted it publicly. There was only one problem. Word came that Suleiman the Great did die, but he had died six weeks before the eclipse even happened. Brahe was humiliated, and the humiliation would continue for months. In December, Brahe's host in Germany threw a party and happened to invite along another Danish noble, Mandrup Parsberg, who also happened to be Tycho's third cousin. Parsberg mocked Tycho for his hilariously earnest and completely wrong Latin poem, and Tycho did not have a sense of humor about it. The two almost came to blows, but they were pulled apart. Until a little over two weeks later, when the two met again, this time in a dimly lit bar. Parsberg snorted at Tycho's assertion that he was a better mathematician. Tycho stood and touched the sword at his hips. In that dark bar, lit only by candles, with everything obscured by their smoke, the two decided to duel to decide once and for all who was the better mathematician. With a single stroke of his blade, Parsberg hacked off the bridge of Tycho Brahe's nose. The injury led to weeks of lonely panic and uncertainty. The real danger was not the injury itself, but the deadly infection it could lead to. Besides, until the scar tissue formed, the extent of the disfigurement couldn't be known. Eventually, Tycho Brahe came to terms with the fact that he was missing most of his nose. Rather than get a wax prosthetic, he chose to instead affix a brass false nose. He had another nose made of a mixture of silver and gold as to be more or less skin-colored, that he brought out for special occasions. Tycho kept a small box filled with adhesive with him at all times for the moment that his nose began to slip in public. When he returned to Denmark again when his father was dying, it was as a new man, literally. Upon his return, he built an observatory at Herevard Abbey, a property belonging to one of his maternal uncles. And it was there that he would make the discovery that would turn him into an overnight scientific celebrity. 
Tycho Brahe had been memorizing the stars in the sky since he was a child. And so, when on November 11, 1572, a brand new star seemed to appear in the sky right next to the constellation Cassiopeia, Tycho noticed right away. First, he asked his sister, Sophia Brahe, who worked alongside him as a research assistant. She confirmed that star definitely hadn't been there before. But Tycho Brahe couldn't wrap his mind around it. He couldn't believe his eyes. He begged servants and passing peasants to look up at the sky. See that star there? That wasn't there before, right? My guess is the passing peasants and servants weren't much help. The thing is, nothing new was supposed to happen in the stars. New things happened in the sky all the time. That was different. In Brahe's day, there was an understanding that the moon revolved around the Earth and things could happen and change beneath the moon in the sublunar space. But beyond the moon, that was supposed to be fixed and unchanging. And this new star, this was further away than the moon. The heavens were changeable. One quick aside to explain how Tycho knew for a fact that the star was beyond the moon, it was using the principle of parallax, or the idea that closer objects will move more relative to their surroundings when you look at them from a different perspective. It's a little tough to explain orally, but have you ever noticed that when you're driving in a car, the nearby scenery right alongside the window seems to whip past while the further scenery moves incredibly slowly? That's an illustration of parallax. With his observation of the new star, Tycho worked alongside his sister to write a short book called Destella Nova, or, fittingly, The New Star. He had found what we now know was a supernova. Tycho Brahe is where we get that name. This feels like the right moment to go back a bit and understand just a little about astronomy as it was understood before the 16th century. Bear in mind, this will be just a really cursory overview. In 360 BCE, Plato posited a version of the universe to explain the way the moon, stars, and sun all would move across the sky. The Earth was the center of the universe, obviously, and then the sun, the moon, and planets all moved around us in perfect celestial spheres. But if you actually observe the motion of the planets, there's a problem. They don't move consistently across the sky the way they were if they were in a perfect divine sphere. The planets, at certain points in their trajectory, move back and then forth again. It was Ptolemy who came up with a solution for this. Retrograde orbits along the route of a planet's main orbit. In simple terms, little epicycles are little loops that planets would make during their big loop. It made sense, mathematically, with the observations they were seeing, sort of. But philosophically, it was a mess. God created the universe, and he created it to be divine and perfect. Circles were symmetrical and mathematically clear. These epicycles were complicated and messy. It was Copernicus, then, who actually figured things out for European astronomers when he posited a heliocentric model a model of the solar system with the sun at the center. 
For the record, there were Islamic astronomers who had more or less been figuring out the exact same thing, both concurrently and also a little bit before Copernicus. But in European circles, it was Copernicus and his controversial theory that scientists were butting their heads up against. Because, well, it flew in the face of the religious teachings that were accepted as gospel. Science was seen as just a way to better understand God's divine vision. It would be absurd to concede that we were not the center of the system that God created. Copernicus died three years before Tycho Brahe was born. And it's important to recognize Brahe was not a heliocentrist. He never believed that the sun was at the center of the solar system or that the earth revolved around it. He, the preeminent astronomer of his day, went to his grave thinking that the earth was stationary, 60 years after Copernicus published his more correct motto. Science is not a series of steady accomplishments at even intervals, where one great man takes on the mantle of a great man before him. That's a convenient way for some people to oversimplify and create a pretty narrow and a little sexist understanding of history, but it's also just not the truth. After his publication of De Stella Nova, Tycho Brahe was an established European astronomer. It was around this time that he almost completely rejected the responsibilities of his noble position. He had no interest in a castle or lordship or fancy aristocratic marriage. Most of the scholars that he was engaging with weren't married for that very reason. An aristocratic marriage was an ordeal. It took time, energy, and attention away from science. But Tycho didn't remain unmarried. He fell in love with a woman named Kirsten Jorgen's daughter, a commoner. Though they lived together for almost 30 years and had eight children, it was technically illegal for a noble and a commoner to get married. Technically illegal, but not entirely unusual. There was an established term under Jewish law for what they had together, basically the modern-day equivalent of a common-law marriage. The main consequence of their relationship was that Tico's children would be commoners. They would have to enroll in school as commoners, and they wouldn't be allowed to inherit any of his noble property. Presumably, the 20-year-old Tico, who just got his nose hacked off, who met a pretty girl named Kirsten, wasn't thinking about inheritance when they met. And again, it wasn't scandalous necessarily, or even uncommon that he took up with a commoner. It was more just seen as a rebuff to Danish high society. Another rebuff? Tycho Brahe was touring around Europe, looking for a better place to build a laboratory. When King Frederick II caught wind of Brahe planning on building a lab in Basel, Switzerland, he panicked. That simply wouldn't do. Brahe had just become a well-known scientist, and he was Danish, for God's sake. Denmark needed to hold on to its scientific celebrities if it wanted to be a world player. And so King Frederick offered Brahe a number of castles and positions, all of which Tycho Brahe rejected. And then the king made another offer, the island of Ven, a small island with 40 farms, which Brahe could rule over like a fiefdom. Brahe thought about it. On one hand, Denmark was a little further north 
than he would have liked in terms of astronomical observations, and it was often wet and cloudy. But Fenn was a tempting offer. It was isolated, that was a plus. Plus, Frederick II was prepared to give Tycho whatever funds he needed to build a truly spectacular laboratory. And remember those farms on the island? The king would throw in their free labor. And so, Tycho Brahe accepted. Uraniaburg was about to come into being. Though the island of Venn had always technically been owned by the crown, the 40 or so families that lived there were freeholding farmers. They made their own community laws and interacted with the outside world in a very limited capacity, maybe when someone went to sell on the mainland. But when Frederick II gave Fenn to Tycho Brahe, that all would change. Tycho first insisted that they cultivate twice as much on their farms, and he was allowed to make that insistence. Also, as part of his position as lord, he was entitled to two full days, from sunup to sundown, a free labor from each of the farms every single week. These farmers were the foot soldiers who would help him build Uraniaborg, the castle of the heavens, named for the Greek muse of astronomy, Urania. Uraniaborg was a Palladian-style castle meant to represent in its dimensions and architectural symmetry the elegance and order of the cosmos. The castle itself was surrounded by a square wall oriented perfectly to the north, south, east, and west. Diagonal paths cut through perfectly manicured gardens towards the main central castle, which was three stories high, and home to dozens of people at any given time. On the top floor, Brahe built unheated apartments where his servants and assistants lived. On the second floor, there was a summer room, the Queen's Chamber, where Queen Sophia of Denmark once came to stay, and the king's chambers. The first floor had living quarters, four huge observatories, a kitchen, and a massive museum library where Tycho kept the giant brass celestial globe that he had personally commissioned. The globe took years to make and get to Brahe, but in a sense, it would actually take 25 years to be completed. Brahe would carefully engrave it with the position of stars he measured one by one. In the basement of Uraniaborg were salt and wood cellars, and also Tycho's alchemy lab. For someone who became famous for the rigor of his mathematical precision and skills of observation, Brahe was also fascinated by alchemy and other sciences that are, let's say, dubious at best. He studied not just astronomy, but also astrology for his entire life. He did readings of the lives of famous men from history and would sometimes perform them for the royal family. At some point, Tycho Brahe kept at Uraniaburg a dwarf named Jep, who acted as a sort of court jester. Brahe would bring Jep out at parties to tell the future for his guest because he believed that he had psychic abilities. And Tycho's guests were often incredibly prominent people the Danish royal family, famous writers and thinkers, even King James VI of Scotland, later King James I of England, came to visit Venn when he came to Denmark to pick up his new wife-to-be. 
If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you might remember James VI, the witch hunter king, and his trip to Denmark. Another of the visitors to Venn would be a young astronomy student named Johannes Kepler. He'll come back into the story later, so remember that name. And if you're listening to this podcast and planning a Mozart, Salieri, Amadeus-style Oscar drama about these two men, I imagine the scene of a young Kepler entranced by the strange and enigmatic brass-nosed Tycho Brahe at the height of his power would make a good cold open. Uraniaborg was sort of a Wonka's factory for science. There was running water, something Queen Elizabeth I didn't have at Hampton Court, nor did Henry III of France at the Louvre. And it wasn't just the castle. Uraniaborg became a compound. Brahe recognized the importance of publishing his own work, but he was also highly suspicious of thieves and copycats. And so he hired a printer and built his own printing press on the island. When he couldn't find access to paper of a high enough quality that he demanded, he also built a paper mill that produced sheets with a watermark, the name and an illustration of his castle. The island also had a tannery that made the parchment for bookbinding, a grain mill, and a machine shop for Tycho to continue to build new and better astronomical instruments. Telescopes weren't in use yet, but Brahe designed and built large specialty equipment that would allow him to record measurements far more precisely than anyone else in Europe. His instruments out on balconies, though, were exposed to wind and the elements, and that could distort his readings. And so Tycho Brahe built another laboratory called Sernberg, or Castle of the Stars. This one dug under the ground, so he and his many assistants and protégés could measure angles and distances in the sky from beneath ground level where wind couldn't affect the readings. Along the halls of Cernberg, Tycho hung portraits of great astronomers throughout history, with the stated purpose of inspiring his students. Of course, one of the portraits was of himself. And the final portrait was of someone who hadn't even been born yet. It was an imaginary person named Tychonitis, a descendant of Tycho Brahe, whose inscription beneath his portrait read that he only wished to be worthy of his great ancestor. Modesty wasn't one of Tycho Brahe's strongest suits. It was that ego that would eventually lead to trouble for Tycho Brahe. His laboratory was renowned, but it was also a massive expense. At one point, 1% of Denmark's wealth was going to Uraniaborg. After Frederick II died, his son, Christian IV, was far less amused by Tycho's science and his antics. Tycho had already made a number of enemies at court, and these enemies were far closer to Christian IV once he came of age. Tycho was just a thorn in his side, an incredibly expensive thorn. For one thing, the peasants on Fen kept complaining about Tycho exploiting them, if you can imagine. The commoners would riot sometimes in front of Brahe's family home in Copenhagen. The winds were changing for Tycho Brahe, and he knew it. He tried 
quickly before he lost too much favor to get the Dowager Queen to put into writing that his kids could maybe be an exception to the no commoners inheriting noble property rule. But soon after, he left Venn and then Denmark. On his way out, he wrote one of his famous Latin poems about his exile, called An Elegy to Denmark, all about what fools they were for letting him go. It was the Latin poem equivalent of the email you write to your ex who breaks up with you, the one that you're not supposed to send. Brahe spent a year at a friend's castle in Germany before he became court astronomer to Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. Tycho and his family then moved to Prague, along with Tycho's most famous assistant, Johannes Kepler. Tycho Brahe worked in Prague for a year before his death, and for that year, he and Kepler endeavored side by side to create the most accurate astronomical tables possible. Kepler would eventually publish them after Brahe's death, and they'd be known as the Rudolphin Tables, named, of course, for their royal patron. Kepler kept all of Tycho Brahe's incredibly important work and notes after Brahe died, no doubt taking advantage of the confusion when it came to the ability of Brahe's children to inherit his property. Using Brahe's data, Kepler was able to make one of the most important scientific discoveries of the last thousand years. The planets don't move in perfect circles. Their orbits are elliptical. Tycho Brahe, in his lifetime, had made his own model of the solar system, a sort of compromise between Plato and Copernicus, where the sun does revolve around the Earth, but the other planets revolve around the sun. Depending on the size of those orbits and the way you draw it, Tycho's model isn't too geometrically different from Copernicus's more correct theory, but it was a compromise that the church and established scientific community at large could swallow. Kepler disagreed with his boss. He knew, like Copernicus knew, that the Earth actually revolved around the sun. But Kepler also knew that Tycho Brahe's measurements were extraordinarily precise. Using Tycho Brahe's measurements for the path of Mars, Kepler realized that his calculations for a circular orbit were off by about eight arc minutes. Now, eight arc minutes is not a lot to be off by. To put it in layman's terms, if you were to hold a penny out at arm's length and turn the penny sideways, the edge of the penny that amount of space was the distance of the margin of error that Kepler got. But Brahe was more precise than that, and Kepler knew it. Brahe would never be off by more than four or five arc minutes. And so Kepler tried again, this time with the calculation for an elliptical orbit. And there it was. It fit. Kepler became a scientific hero, and the idea that planets traveled in elliptical orbits became the first of his three laws of planetary motion. Kepler was a German man born to a struggling mercenary and the daughter of an innkeeper. Very convenient how Brahe died, and then Kepler was able to use all of the data he left behind to achieve glory. Almost too convenient. Some posited just an idea that Kepler 
had poisoned Tycho Brahe, who died at age 54. Kepler, his assistant, would have had the opportunity. He would have had access to the poison, mercury, and he definitely had the motive. In his writings, Kepler explained Brahe's death a little differently. He wrote that on October 24th, 1601, he and Brahe were at a banquet for Rudolf II. Brahe had to urinate, but because royal decorum dictated that you couldn't leave the table before the king, he had to hold it in. Eleven days later, now unable to urinate and in extreme pain, Brahe died, but not before begging his people to finish his work and publish the Rudolphine Tables. Of course, Kepler readily agreed. The Lord of Uraniaborg died a urine-related death. Urania, urine, sounds like fate. Unfortunately, there is no etymological link between those two words, but, you know, doesn't make it any less interesting. Tycho Brahe's achievements were vast and remarkable, especially when one remembers that all of his work was done with the naked eye. Galileo wouldn't use a telescope until eight years after Tycho Brahe's death. So Tycho did all of his work just looking up at the sky. That's all it took. Well, that and the sponsorship of kings, a near-infinite supply of money and free labor. But just that. That's the life and death of Tycho Brahe, but keep listening after a brief sponsor break to hear about when scientists decided to examine those pesky murder rumors. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash noble. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Tycho Brahe's body was exhumed twice, first in 1901 and then in 2010, when scientists investigated once and for all whether those Kepler murder rumors had any truth to them. Unfortunately, the answer is no. 
Bry did have a little bit of mercury in his hair follicles, but no more than the normal amount that an alchemist-slash-scientist in the 16th century would have. Plus, the data didn't indicate a sudden amount of mercury flooding his system right before his death. Bry also had gold in his system, which people tended to drink at the time in their wine for medicinal purposes. So it was more likely, scientists decided, that Tico had some bladder or kidney issue before that fateful banquet that ultimately led to his demise. So, no murder by a jealous, ambitious assistant, exciting as that might have been. Thanks a lot, science. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The, holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The, make a splash all summer kind of fun. The, I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find, for the fun of it, kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends. 